the attack on our husband as head of his household comes from all sides. Do we recognize those attacks from others? And does he also suffer attack from his wife? Or do we demonstrate consistently that we are on his team and have his back, as we vow to be and to do? Welcome, ladies, to the final part of our series entitled Compensating. This is part six. And to be honest, this is um, this last part is the one that hits on the actual content which inspired the series title. When I started this series, I didn't actually have the other five parts uh, leading up to this one planned out at all. <laughs> I just realized as I went along and talking through my thoughts with my husband that pedagogically certain subject matter needed to be addressed, which is frankly how we do everything around here. And so we ended up with a six-part series instead of a single episode. But I sincerely hope that this series has been useful to you. Today we begin by returning to what we've been referring to as the 1% situation, where for whatever reason, a wife is the primary and or sole breadwinner of the household, and it is a situation which truly cannot or must not be reversed, and where the situation is due to the general hereditary consequences of sin, and not because either wife or husband has sinfully opted to abdicate their God-given role. We said that there is always some measure of suffering in any situation which does not perfectly conform to God's designs, and so we wanted to share some ideas as to how to mitigate suffering in this sort of 1% situation. These ideas come from a conversation Hubby and I had surrounding that quote from Pope Pius Twelfth, which I hope is pretty familiar to you by now. Quote, the prime role of the husband is to provide a living and prepare the future for the family and the home in those matters which affect him and the children in that future." End quote. So we look at this quote and of course that very first part about the prime role of the husband's being to provide a living is what we're unable to apply in a one percent situation by and large. But then what does the rest of that sentence say? That he is to prepare the future for the family and the home in those matters which affect him and the children in that future. And it is that latter part of that sentence that can guide us in an effort to conform to God's order where we can. For example, in the areas of discipline and making decisions regarding the children's schooling, this is being concerned with the future, the future of the children. The finances, if he can manage the finances, he ought to be, again, being concerned with the future, looking ahead, making plans for what the family can accomplish or what can be accomplished for the family by means of excellent stewardship of the money his wife is working to provide. If he can direct, if he can guide how that money is being used, this is an excellent way for him to exercise his headship in service of his family. This might be a stretch if he is incapacitated in such a manner that prevents him from working, but it's worth considering. Can he be involved in the church? In parish life? Can he do volunteer work in the community? How can he be helped to feel that he is bettering the world which his children will inherit? 
There are so many ways to apply this idea of enabling an otherwise incapacitated husband to attend to matters pertaining to the future of his family that we don't necessarily have a step-by-step game plan for this specific situation. And so aside from hoping that you're able to glean some ideas from the previous episodes on what might be right for your situation, we really recommend speaking to a priest, preferably one who knows both you and your husband well, who knows the details of your situation, but also a priest who supports a biblical model of marriage. And I really wish that that wasn't a disclaimer that needs to be given, but Layla Miller's Impossible Marriages Redeemed, which we spotlighted at the end of August last year, highlighted for me the fact that many priests are afraid of even appearing to expect of their parishioners some semblance of what God truly demands with regards to marriage. If you want a holy marriage and one that is happy because it is truly healthy, it's best to steer clear of those types of priests because in the grand scheme of salvation history, they are not doing anyone any favors by appearing to go easy on them. They are only prolonging the struggle. They are only prolonging the suffering. They are only feeding into the crisis. In today's day and age, it is worth your while to find a solid priest and a solid parish. So talk to a priest, find ways to enable your husband to exercise his headship elsewhere, meaning give him the space to focus on those matters which pertain to the future of your family and of the world into which your children will go. And finally, and this should come as no surprise, do not expect your husband to compensate for your proper role as keeper and cultivator of culture in your home. If he desires to be more involved. If he desires to take aspects of your role off of your plate, that is one thing. And that's fine. That's his prerogative as head of the family. But don't expect him to, meaning don't resent him if he doesn't. Moving into our second part of today's episode here, Um, And this is, I'm trying to make this a shorter episode because we've had so many long ones. Interestingly, emasculation is something that women can do to men, but there isn't really an equivalent which men can impose upon women. Emasculation is actually a synonym of castration, That's how dramatic emasculation is. That's how severe it is. And there is not really a female equivalent of castration, which is why there's really no female equivalent of emasculation. Women make themselves less womanly. We are the ones who choose to persist in competing with our spouses, in competing with men in general. We are the ones who choose to attempt to prove that we can do anything that men can do. But there is no suffering which a man can impose upon a woman which is the equivalent of the suffering a woman imposes upon a man when she emasculates him. Nor do men attempt to prove that they can do anything women can do. Not because women can do less, not because what women do is less vital, but because men have an instinctive wisdom 
that comes from Adam. Adam saw Eve and knew she was other. There was no doubt in his mind that she was other, that she had her own name. He named her something other than himself because he made the distinction between the two of them and he was thunderstruck by her, by her otherness, that otherness that made her the perfect complement to him. We women are the ones who devalue and reject our own femininity. In her book, The Anti-Mary Exposed, Rescuing the Culture from Toxic Femininity, Carrie Gress shares this quote from actress Mae West. Quote, when women go wrong, men go right after them. End quote. And I didn't know who Mae West was <laughs> when I read that quote. And I looked her up and no, she's not a particularly good role model for, um, making sure that this uh, quote isn't applicable. <laughs> um, but, it, but it's a good quote. She's absolutely right. The other thing to understand about the work of undoing the effects of emasculation is that only women can undo what women have done. Men cannot undo the effects of emasculation for each other. I want to give a disclaimer. I'm not sharing the following with the intention of discouraging or overwhelming anyone. I realize that many might find this next part very discouraging and or overwhelming, but I'm the sort of person who appreciates knowing what I'm up against. And what we are up against, ladies, is no small thing. Emasculation is indicative of demonic activity. St. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, quote, for we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places, end quote. Even a wife who is thoroughly committed to being vigilant against emasculating her husband, who bravely faces her own inner demons, often contends with this demonic activity in the world on three other fronts. The first being that her husband has been emasculated from childhood, by the entire world. There are a few professions in which this can be avoided, but for most men, the emasculation is likely continuing to the present day in their workplace. It is horrendous, that is, we ought to find it horrendous, that emasculation is a societal standard for children in most brick and mortar schools. It begins with girls' behavior being the standard for good behavior. And it is demanded of boys that they suppress their natural tendencies rather than teaching them to channel those tendencies and form those skills which are valued practically when in service of a family, even if they are largely unappreciated in word or deed. 
What woman wants a husband who will not protect her and his children with his life? What woman wants a husband who has no ambition to provide well for his family and will not assert himself in the workplace to the detriment of his family's quality of living? And yet, aggression, assertion, and ambition are very much squashed out of little boys at school, and if there are any traces of it left in adulthood, it's referred to as toxic masculinity. It continues in higher education and the workplace. No one can ever talk about how men are victims of emasculation. In society, only women can claim to be the victims of any sort. The only way that a man can merit the right to claim victimhood is if he claims to be a woman. Isn't that interesting? And even children who are not in brick-and-mortar schools, even the homeschoolers, even the unschoolers, cannot escape the influence of toxic feminism in their own homes, as evidenced by the other two fronts on which the attack comes. The second front being that a husband may have been emasculated vicariously by his mother. If his mother actively emasculated his father. This is, in my estimation, the worst front of the three. Men who have controlling, manipulative, disrespectful mothers. Men who watch their fathers backed into corners, made to shut up. Men who watch their fathers be criticized and beaten down in spirit by their mothers suffer tremendously. I think it's a miracle that these men married at all, for none of them would choose consciously to be treated by a woman as they watched their mother treat their father. So realize, too, how much hope you gave him. That maybe in actuality he did merit a respect that his father didn't seem to. And these men, they cannot ask their father for help, nor are they inclined to, because he did not appear to be a very strong person to them, given that he allowed himself to be pushed around by his wife. So they grieve for their father and have great empathy for him, but they do not dare to show it, because showing it is an admittance, an acknowledgement of the disorder present in their childhood. And it is almost, I don't really know um, a better way to say this, but to show any empathy is actually like a disloyalty to their dad because of what they think it says about his character, when really it says so much more about their mother's character. But their mother, uh, they cannot criticize. I won't go so far as to call it a love-hate relationship, but it is certainly a strained relationship. They cannot win against their mother. Likely their mother was much more involved with raising her children, and likely it was because she was controlling and criticized anything their father tried to do. So while she is responsible for limiting their father's influence over them, she is admittedly also responsible for doing much of the raising. And that's something that they can't get past. They undoubtedly owe much to their mom for everything good that she did, but they also suffered greatly at her hands for the disorder that she created in their home. Again, emasculation is no small thing. It is due to demonic influence. The proof of this is in Genesis, Eve usurped her husband's headship at the urging of the devil himself. And that dialogue, that interaction between the devil in the form of the serpent and Eve is an interaction and a dialogue that occurs with every wife to this day.
And finally, the third front, which is almost as unfortunate as being emasculated vicariously by their mother, is that where a husband is emasculated by his mother-in-law. How many mothers-in-law openly criticize their daughter's husband? How many mothers encourage their daughters to defy their husband's headship? They will feed her all sorts of insidious thoughts regarding how much money her husband makes, the kind of housing that he provides for her, the amount of time that he spends working, how helpful he is around the house, they take issue with how he disciplines their grandchildren, and so on and on and on and on. And when their daughters find a better way and seek to be properly submissive to their husband, the son-in-law becomes even more the enemy because he has somehow subdued his wife. This is the lie that they insist on believing because if they were to accept and believe that their daughter is following God's commands of her own accord, it would force them to examine their own behavior. And they cannot face up to the fact that they might have been wrong in how they treated their own husband as their daughter was growing up. Or that they taught their daughter a bad way to treat men, making her responsible, at least in part, but a very great part, for the suffering that her daughter experiences in her marriage when she imitates her mother's disrespectful ways. But again, I, I don't highlight any of this with the intention of discouraging or overwhelming anyone. Something that my husband told me was that a wife can do much and can do much very quickly to reverse the emasculation foisted upon men by their mothers, their teachers, by the system. And not only can a wife act effectively as a shield against her husband's emasculation in the workplace and by both of their mothers. But a wife can actually help a husband grow beyond that and to thrive in spite of all of that, to grow to reclaim his masculinity with ever-growing confidence and vigor. And she can accomplish, accomplish this in two ways. Obviously, the first being to guard against her own tendencies to emasculate him, but also to cleave to him firmly. To give him no reason to doubt that she cleaves to him and to him only above all others. This is another way of expressing that call to care for the garden of our husband's heart. If a husband has been heavily emasculated and or is being heavily emasculated currently, making a deliberate point to actively cleave to your husband uh, can require some pretty drastic action. And this action that I refer to is that of refusing to spend time with people who do not respect your husband. Refuse to spend time with people who do not respect your husband. Um, you might not need to do this forever. Ideally, you won't have to once your husband is secure in your own respect for him, and then the two of you can be a good influence to others, and you can witness to a biblical model of marriage, and you can guide other young women um, to, to follow that biblical model. But first, you have to solidify the fortress of your own marriage. Early on in the process of reversing emasculation, 
It is essential to not give a husband any reason to suppose that you might be talking behind his back to those women whom he knows do not respect him. And yes, if that means his mom, if that means your own mom, if that means your sisters, his sisters, his female colleagues, be strict. Again, you you can always let them into your life later with the intention of being a good influence on them. But at first, you might very well have to remove their negative influence from your life. So that if you are weak and susceptible yourself, you can rise above it and become impervious to it. But even if you are not so weak, even if they have no negative influence on you, you must build your husband up so that he is impervious to that negative influence also. Again, it might seem drastic, but you made vows to your husband not to your mother, not to your sister, not to his mother, not to his sister. You made vows to your husband. And your vows to him matter more than any pseudo-friendship with women who do not fear God as they ought to. It doesn't have to be a huge confrontation. It can be as simple as saying no to one invitation at a time. And if over time they notice and challenge you on spending less time with them, you can tell them a very simple one-line truth which captures it all. My marriage comes first. My marriage comes first. You don't need to go into detail. And their true colors will most certainly be revealed if they attempt to tell you that you have your priorities wrong, right? My marriage comes first. That's all you have to say. The only reason that you have to give to any accusations. Moreover, you do not want their influence to supersede your own influence on your children. You must be 310% responsible for teaching your children how to respect their father. And if they're seeing, hearing their grandmothers, their aunts, your friends criticizing your husband, even bashing your husband, if you willingly entertain that sort of company frequently, that makes a huge impression on your kids. You have to understand, extended family have zero rights whatsoever when it comes to your kids. Your kids are entrusted to you by God. And extended family have whatever privileges you allow them. If they lead your kids astray, sure, they'll be held responsible for their own actions, but you are culpable for allowing them the space to have that kind of influence on your kids. It is so tough and it can be so messy, but you have to love God and to love his commands above everything and everyone. That's what it comes down to. Ladies, I, I encourage you to consider the incredible opportunity that you have to be of great service to your husband on his path to heaven. 
And to that end, I will leave you with one last quote. This is from Chesterton's All Things Considered, um, the essay on running after one's hat. <laughs> quote, some consider such romantic views of flood or fire slightly lacking in reality. But really, this romantic view of such inconveniences is quite as practical as the other. The true optimist who sees in such things an opportunity for enjoyment is quite as logical and much more sensible than the ordinary indignant ratepayer who sees in them an opportunity for grumbling. The same principle can be applied to every other typical domestic worry. An adventure is only an inconvenience, rightly considered. An inconvenience is only an adventure, wrongly considered. Wine is good with everything except water. And on a similar principle, water is good with everything except wine. End quote. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm-hmm.